What If the Len Bias Story, hosted by Jordan Ritter Khan, is the Ringer's latest narrative podcast. Episodes one and two launch on June 9th, and you can find new episodes every Wednesday on the Book of Basketball 2.0 feed. Here's a quick trailer. You've heard his name, Len Bias, 1980s phenom, second pick in the NBA draft. And then cocaine, tragedy, one of the most shocking deaths in sports history. 35 years later, Bias's legacy is still making an impact. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, this is What If, the Lynn Bias story. I'm Jordan Ritter Khan. It's the Ringer NBA show presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find out what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 years and older. 18 and older in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. Whether it's taking all your little ones to their sporting events or everybody getting together and taking a ride to the beach, the all-new Hyundai 2024 Santa Fe is equipped for any adventure. With features like available H-Track all-wheel drive, you can take on the dirt trails and kick up some mud. Or... Standard third row seating so your whole family can experience the thrill together. Learn more about the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe at HyundaiUSA.com. Hello and welcome to Group Chat After Dark. I am Justin Barrier. We're not doing our usual quote for the Open because we have a lot to talk about. And also, I'm a coward because uh, usually it takes me two or three times to actually accomplish that. I'm a coward like Terrence Mann. Let's go with that. That works. Uh, joining me, Rob Mahoney. Hey, JV. What's up? The Instagram model extraordinaire, Wazi <laughs> Lambray. Yo, yo, yo. And a special guest rejoining us, uh, Jonathan Chark, straight from the heart of Dallas. What's up, my friend? There he is. Hey, Welcome back, nice to my be brother. back. Welcome back. Waz, I heard you on the last pod. Talking about you don't believe in God and stuff. <laughs> I'm gone for this pod for a few months. The whole thing goes All off right. the rails. All right, clear <laughs> out, clear out. ISO, ISO. Let's, uh, let's, I had let's to say that for the back end of, of the podcast. The, the thing about that, Jarks, is that I, I turned atheist in like eighth grade. <laughs> and, and I was okay, we got definitely the back end of the pod. We got lots of time. <laughs> and I was in Catholic school. How does it feel to be uh, back on the A-team after doing a stint on Ringer U? It's great. I'm loving it. <laughs> Talking right. about Watergate and stuff, it's good stuff. Yeah, yeah. We have a lot to get through, including the history of uh, American politics and apparently Jesus himself. Um, all right, we're going to get through a lot today. Four games on the slate somehow. Uh, I watched most of them, or at least attempted to watch as much as I can. Sorry to the Utah Jazz and the Grizzlies, but we'll address you eventually. Uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the Celtics completely overhauling their front office uh, and their coaching situation. Waz is licking his chops for that one, but uh, we'll wait. 
Uh, let's start with the Clippers. Uh, I, I want to get into bigger picture discussions here, but let's start with something that's near and dear to our hearts, which is Terrence Mann, the stock that we were all holding, the man coin, uh, just plummeted right before our eyes here. I'm, I'm just, Charks, you strike me as someone who would be all in on Terrence Mann getting more love. Uh, were you as disappointed as we all were? I'm disappointed in you. This is like the usual LA bias. The Mavs just won like the biggest game in 10 years. Luca had an incredible performance. You want to talk about the seventh man on the Clippers? Are you kidding me? Luca was unworldly. Let's talk about that. Okay. Um, all right, let's do that then. Uh, so here is the difference in this series, uh, according to me, which is really important. Um, so the Clippers mortgaged their future for Kawhi but they still do not have the best player in this series, which <laughs> seems significant. Uh, I thought, especially in that fourth quarter, that Kawhi was going to come up. Uh, the Mavs seemed to be fading fast, and then it wasn't enough. Uh, Charks, is Luka solidifying himself on another level in this series, which is already saying something because he was already top 10 player in the league? I mean, I think so. It's crazy. Like, what stood out to me in this game is, like, whenever Zubats was in the game, it was like automatic buckets for Luca. Like that's how good he is now. Is like you've got to have five good defenders all the time. At any point in the game, there's a bad defender out there. Like it's a wrap. I think Zubac was minus twenty in twenty minutes, and that was all Luca is giving him buckets or double teaming pass to someone else. Like he's just that good now. Waz, what do you think? Yeah, it's crazy because you know the 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 third quarter was was Luca's masterpiece, where you know he's snaking the pick and roll. He's doing two things. One, he's keeping the defender, what they call keeping him in jail, where he has the guy on his back and he's poking his ass out. So it's like, in order for you to give even a decent contest, you have to reach over my back to do so, which is a foul. So the defender's basically helpless at that point. And then, of course, Zubac, because he's Zub and he's slow-footed and he never wants to come out and guard people, he's sticking his butt in the paint. And Luca's like, oh, guess what? I'm good at floaters. I know how to make that. <laughs> and he drained a bunch of floaters in a row. And it was just like, you know, it was like he was playing against children. And then when they decided, like Jarks just mentioned, to commit extra defenders, it was like, no, I'm finding an open man and it's going to be an open tray. And it was just on and on and on. It went in the fourth, in the third quarter, excuse me. And that's what got them that 14-point lead going into the fourth. Like, Luka just couldn't be stopped. He made a step back three in, um, in that in that span. And it was just, that that's what gave them that great cushion going into the fourth quarter. At this point, I think Luka has to be pretty high, pretty early in the conversation for the best players in the world for a seven-game context. You know, we can talk about an extended playoff run because even in this game, he looked pretty gassed by the end. I don't know how long he can do this in the grand scheme of things, but for one opponent for seven games where he can really figure you out, this is this is about as good as it gets. I think like kind of what Waz was saying, you have to switch on Luka. You have to always have a body on him. If there's no body on him, like forget about it. Like the Clippers in game six can play like six players. Anybody else is out there, it's like, it's buckets. Yeah, and it was disappointing because I thought this was going to be the game where Kawhi kind of rested back, kind of control of that title belt for the series or even in these playoffs, just because the past two games he'd been incredible, right? He shot over 70% from the floor. And even in this one, it seemed like he was kind of melding his game in order to be whatever they needed to be. He was even getting into the paint 
uh, kind of trying to swat the ball away from Boban when the Mavs were trying to feed him, when they were trying to exploit this smaller lineup for the Clippers that they'd kind of like stuck to. They stuck to their guns. They wanted to go small. They wanted to play their way. And I thought like, oh, this is Kawhi really rising to the moment. But like at the end of the game, like you look at the statistical lines and even though Kawhi wasn't particularly inefficient, he was seven from 19 from the floor. Luka was just everything they needed to be. And it felt like the, the, the Clippers just needed that. They needed someone to just take this game by the throat and just like bring them along. And unfortunately, that just typically isn't how Kawhi does things all the time. Like his, oh, I his, thought you his, were going to say that they needed somebody and Reggie Jackson stepped up to become <laughs> the biggest ball-hogging, jacking-ass dude I've ever seen in my freaking life. And to his credit, he made four three-pointers in the third quarter, right? Um, and you got to say to yourself, this guy's making threes. You know, at this rate, that's that's huge for the Clippers. That's got to be a game that you damn near win. But, you know, he makes those four threes, and then he proceeds to jack up a bunch of one-on-one isolation, step-back three-pointers as if he were freaking Dame Lillard. And that's not offense. By the way, Kawhi Leonard is on the floor while this is happening. Right. And Reggie Jackson, like, cool. Like, if you're taking rhythm, spot up jump shots, or if you're just completely wide open, you know, coming off of a, a pick and roll and both defenders sort of sag off of you and you're wide open and it's late in the clock, do what you got to do, Reggie Jackson. But early clock jacking it up because you're quote unquote feeling it because you're six for 15 today. No, that's not going to work. You know, but this is sort of how the team is built, right? There's nobody who's in there to say, hold on, Reggie Jackson, stop with this shit. That's not how these possessions should be running. You know, um, it's not because Kawhi's not the point guard. Paul George is not the point guard, right? Like, there's nobody on the team that can really do that on a consistent basis. And I think that hurt them down the stretch. Well, that's the beauty of, I almost can't believe I'm saying this, but the beauty of the way the Mavs defended in this game. Because mm. from shifting from the zone, and as soon as the Clippers were figuring out the zone, they went man. As soon as they were figuring out the man, they went back to zone. They were just kind of toggling between those mm-hmm. looks. And when you do that and you're keeping the Clippers on their heels, you're kind of gently nudging the ball toward Reggie Jackson, toward Nick Batum, toward Marcus Morris, to these positions where, you know, you're going to live with some open threes in some of those spots, but you're keeping the ball away from Kawhi and Paul George, who... I thought this was probably the worst collective performance from the Clippers stars we've seen in this series so far. And some of that was them just being a little off their game because of the zone, not being able to quite crack it in the way they might have expected. Uh, but considering where things were at the end of game four, that's a hell of an achievement for the Mavs to pull off. I mean, the number that stood out to me, you look at Kawhi and Paul George, that's nine combined turnovers. And a lot mm-hmm. of them, they were get, it was going the other way after the turnover. Yeah. And that's for a while, so there's no point guard. And that goes back to Luka, too, because the end of the game, they're playing Terrence Mann, Kawhi, Paul George, Batum, Morris. That's your five best Luka defenders. There's no point guard in that group. And that hurts you on your offense. Yeah, see, I saw a lot of chatter about this after the fact. And I don't necessarily disagree. Like, point guard has been a concern this entire season. Like, they've been looking around. They made the Rondo trade and probably overpaid in order to get him in order to shore up that spot. Obviously, (laughs) Rondo going over six is not going to cut it in this one. But, like... I see that and I think I think it's kind of a cop out. Like they, mm. they have two of the best stars in the NBA and like even if that is a weakness of Kawhi, even if that is like not the best thing that Paul George does, like that they should be able to overcome that. Whereas Luka just like he doesn't need anybody else in order to thrive and you're seeing that kind of play out here. 
Yeah, and I think there's and there, you're right. It is a bit of a cop out because I thought in the fourth quarter we saw some encouraging things from the Clippers in the sense of one, they went to their switching ass lineup and look early on, Finney Smith, Tim Hardaway Jr. Those shots were wide open, right? Super wide open. Should have made those shots, but in the middle of the quarter, and Luca's in the game, by the way. And the Clippers are just getting stop after stop after stop. It's, it's because they're just switching everything. There's no openings. It's like, all right, you, you've carried this burden all game. Now in the fourth quarter, after all of that um, effort you've put in, you've got to now use your best moves to beat quality defenders one-on-one. And I thought that they found something in that one. But to get back to Paul George and Kawhi, Paul George was living in the paint in the fourth quarter. Like, whether it was Boban in there, whether it was KP in there, he was getting to the rack. He got to the line a few times. It's like, shit, that's what I want to see from Paul George. I want to see you live in the paint. Same with Kawhi. Uh, So I thought that was very encouraging. Like, they put their heads down and started going downhill. Because, you know, I mean, Boban, yeah, he's big. But, like, athletes like Kawhi and Paul George should not see Boban as a deterrent at the cup. So I thought those were pretty, uh, you know, encouraging signs for them. But as Jarks mentioned, it's like, all right, offensively, it makes you a lot weaker. Yeah, talking about like Paul George getting to the rim, that goes back to the matchup. So one thing Rick did that was smart, Carlisle, he took Maxi Cleaver pretty much out of the game. Kawhi was lighting him up. So he moved Finney Smith onto Kawhi Leonard. And that leaves Tim Hardaway on Paul George. And if you're Paul George, that just should be, you know, every time right to the rim. Is Boban's $3.5 million contract the best price you could ever pay for a clinching, a game five win in the playoffs, basically? Like his his impact on this game, just in terms of shaking the matchups up, giving them a backline presence, you know, like they had no way in game four of putting help defense in front of the rim. They were spaced out. They had nothing they could do. Going to the zone, putting Boban there, even, you know, even Chris Stapps was playing in the middle of that zone so, some. I honestly didn't think the Mavs would be able to pull that off. I didn't think they would be able to manage that balance between how do we keep pressure on the shooters, how do we guard Kawhi and PG, but also defend the rim. And they did. And I think, to me, what that shows, and or really just kind of re-illustrates, is that there's really nobody better in terms of, of NBA coaches at closing the gap between an underdog and a favorite than Rick Carlisle. That is where he lives. That is where he makes his money. He is so good at junking this stuff up. And the Mavs junked it up perfectly, at least to get this win. You know, the, the big questions going forward when you put Boban on film a lot and you showed the Clippers a lot of zone as to what it's going to look like in the next two, next game or two. Uh, but for this one, it was good enough. The Boban inclusion tends to be like a, a white flag of sorts when he usually comes out on the, on the court mean. and people want to factor him more into the game plan. Like it's not exactly the annexation of Puerto Rico, but it is kind of like a, hey. a trick play, like a junk play. We're going to throw out the jumbo set where we put our guard at tight end and we'll see if you could deal with it. It's the Fumbaruski. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, I mean, that is my big question going forward. Do you think that like the Mavs got just enough in order to get this one out in order to support Luca or like since Luca's, I guess just going to go for 40 every game now, uh, are we just going to say that the Mavs are, are in control of the series at this point? Charles, what do you think? I wouldn't say in control. I mean, they barely snuck it out. The Clippers already won two games in Dallas. I'm looking at the box score right now. Only one person that blitz was Tim Hardy with 20 points and he needed 19 shots to get it. So if you're the Clippers, you say everybody else got held in place, but Luca basically. So if you can play better defense on Luka, you're going to win. Big if, though. 
Yeah, and you know, this is why I love the playoffs. Is it's hard choices, right? It's like, am I just gonna come out and play six guys this next do or die game? Uh, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George playing 44, 45 minutes. Um, and, you know, basically being like, forget rest at this point. Forget what it's going to look like in the fourth when, you know, I'm sorry, that fourth quarter, that's the best y'all looked guarding this guy all series. Like, the Mavs, the, their offense looked a little bit stuck in the mud. Luka was dribble, dribble, dribble. Even Morris was getting, digging in and getting good position against him, right? Like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Batum was getting good position against him, forcing difficult looks. Like, and, and, you know, to Luca's credit, some of those looks barely rimmed out, went in and out. Like, a lot of those could have easily fell in. But if you're the, if you're, if you're Ty Lue, it's like, what is your choice here? You know, like, that's, that's what we, we always love about these matchups. It's like, you have to make a hard decision about, am I going to just fully commit to this small thing or am I going to do something else? Terrence Mann. <laughs> I just don't want to believe it. It all comes. It all comes back around. <laughs> he was our guy. He was our man. And, I mean, and now look, he's not. you know what's so funny about that? I watched that and I didn't think anything of it in real time. I wasn't like, "Oh, he blew it," because I'm like, "Shit, he got the steal in the first place, right?" Like he right, right. caused the turnover in the first place, and it, you know, jumbled up fast break. I understand, and it's he's a he's not a rookie. He's a second year guy. It's a huge moment. I, I wouldn't say he freaking blew it though. Like he just stole the ball just now from Luka Doncic of all people. No, when they blew it was in the third quarter. Like if if the Clippers lose this series, that's going to be where their season ended. Is that like twenty five to five run in the third quarter where Luka caught a freaking lob for a layup? That's how that's how things were going for the Mavs in that quarter. That's not great. Not great for the Clippers. Right. I'll say also that play to man, it was Paul George passing it to man. If you're Paul George there, pull it back out, get the ball to Kawhi. You're down one with 10 seconds left. I will say, like, I don't really trust Paul George to end the games. I feel like sometimes he'll just do things that doesn't make a ton of sense. That's going to get him at some point. Like shoot the ball off the side of the backboard? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Having said that, though, man was wide open, and I believe it was Luka Doncic who was closing the door on hey. him. <laughs> He's like, Luka can literally not even jump. <laughs> like, I don't know how he would have even got, got in his, like, his view in order to block him there. Uh, and then you pass it to Nick Batum, which just like doubles down on, on the horror. Um, having said that, though, Paul uh, Kawhi just airballed that last shot, so... I guess you can't it's put good too much tested. on it. You know, he's kind of off balance. It's not like we've ever seen him make that in a big spot before, you know? Right. <laughs> it's not like he has a history of making falling away three-pointers at the buzzer. <laughs> right. All right, let's, uh, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll talk about some of these other series. This episode is supported by State Farm. Man, I remember when I first got into a car accident, it was pure frustration because I did not have State Farm. And now that I do have State Farm, it is an exclamation of pure joy. But the only words that you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. All right. So 
I thought we were going to have to really diagnose the Philadelphia 76ers and find out what is wrong with them. Unfortunately, we might be able to delay that uh, conversation just a little bit longer. On the other hand, though, Mm. I'm a little bit worried. You know, like uh, there was a a convincing win in the end here. Sixers won 129 to 112 in order to close out the Wizards. But it wasn't pretty for most of it. Uh, Rob, how are you feeling about the Philadelphia 76ers as we await the diagnosis of one Joel Embiid here? Yeah, you mean Joel Embiid's torn meniscus has you a little concerned? <laughs> well, the we can't MVP tell how candidate. torn it was. Yeah, like they keep, I've heard of like slight tear. I've heard full tear. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know how much of a tear you need in order to play basketball. Yeah, they said it's a little tear. Um, I don't think there are little tears where where meniscuses are concerned. Menisci are concerned. It's mm. easy to say that when it's not your meniscus, you know. Nah, it's just a small <laughs> tear. Don't worry about it. You're good. Put some tussing on it. <laughs> tussing. <laughs> nice. Um, but overall, Rob, uh, Sixers, this one was a little uneven. Ultimately, it seemed like they turned it on late. Yeah, pretty uneven. I think, you know, this is where it really pays off to be the number one seed, to be on the other side of the bracket from Brooklyn and Milwaukee, and you can hopefully get him, you know, get him beat back, get him into the lineup, get him in rhythm. But until then, we've at least seen that Doc Rivers is willing to get a little weird, which is great. You know, basically starting Ben Simmons at power forward center, however you want to align it. I thought we were going to get like 30 minutes of Mike Scott at the five in this game, and I was kind of dreading it. So it was great to see a more dynamic Sixers team and one that really separated down the stretch just with offense. We got great Tyrese Maxey and Furkan Korkmaz minutes. And it's like, when a team loses its center and they get smaller and wingier, this is this is kind of what you want to see from a team in their position that has as much flexibility as they do. Sharks, what do you think about Simmons in this one? So the first half had me a little bit worried. Uh, he kind of found his rhythm a little bit more playing in that lineup. It seemed like he got more out in transition. He was getting a little bit more comfortable passing and setting up guys. I think it helped uh, that some of the shots started to fall here. But this is kind of shaping up to be probably a definitive is Ben Simmons one of the guys conversation here while Joel is out here. I don't know if he's going to get many more opportunities considering how well Joel has played of late and how poorly Ben has been at times this season. Where are you on Simmons now, especially after this game? I mean, I've been saying for a long time he's a center. And I think you saw it in this game with the lane wide open. He can cut in on rolls, find open shooters. Like, I mean, if Nick Batum's a center, why can't Ben Simmons be a center? You look around all these playoff series, there's only two or three where he'd be really small in the opposing center. And I feel like in those lineups, he's much, much better. When Embiid comes back, he's got to sacrifice, take a step back. There's just no room for him to do what he does. I mean, he's not really a guard. And we've seen that a million times now in the playoffs, what it really matters. Mm-hmm. He's just not the guy in the way that we ask other guys to be the guy. You know, he's so much more of a facilitator. And, and to Chark's point, like if if we're going to call him more of a big or more of a center, I, I see a lot of similarity between him and Bam, just in the sense that their offensive games aren't really scalable in that way. He's not a guy you just force feed shots to and he's going to put up 25 in a game on volume. That's not going to happen. We saw it in this game. Like Seth Curry was handling the ball a lot. Tobias Harris was handling the ball a lot. That's how that offense is going to function. And Simmons is going to be the roller, the the hitman, the pressure release. He's going to do all that stuff for you. And he could be really great. I thought, you know, he he helped turn this game in some parts with his defense on Bradley Beal, some great denial. Like he can do all of those things. The transition play is obviously super important. But he's just not going to produce for you in that kind of on-demand way that stars are asked to produce. And if, if that means he's not good enough to be 
a whatever, an all-NBA player, an all-star, a franchise player, however you want to define it, that's up to you. Personally, I think you can get enough of that stuff from other places, especially if, you know, Joel Embiid is healthy and on the court. See, but to me, it's it's like a guy at your size, if you, you're not an initiator or a finisher, you're a junk-up-the-game, garbage-pail guy, that's... That, that that's I, you know those are guys, those guys are important to winning. Don't get it twisted, but again, for the five hundredth time, those guys are not stars. That's nobody's star. Well, if you're telling are, me, would you call uh, Draymond a star or no? No, no. Draymond is a star within that context, and I think we saw that this year within the context of that original iteration of the Warriors, 2014-15. He's a star. In that context, but you put him next to Steph on the team they assembled this year, nobody was calling Draymond a star. In fact, people were like, can you average eight points a game, sir, please, on this team? You know, and so to me, you you don't start possessions, meaning, you know, Rob just said they're giving Tobias and Seth Curry the ball. They rather them initiate offense than your quote-unquote star. That just... That doesn't cut muster for me. And again, like, you know, you're a good, you're a great def- um, perimeter defender. Don't get it twisted. But like, you were billed as this guy's like, all right, if you give him some space, meaning you you uh, you surround him with shooters, you spread the floor out, he's going to break dudes got- down. He's going to find his spots. He's going to get, he's not. He's not. He's a duck-in kind of guy. He's, a, you know, sort of roam around the dunker spot and get junk plays around the rim, still scared to go to the free throw line, so he avoids contact on his drives. I'm off Ben Simmons, y'all. I I can't do it. I I can't (laughs) do it with Ben Simmons. Not in the context that he exists in currently anyway. I think the one thing that might win you over, and especially in this next series, if they're going to play Atlanta, Trey Young is going to be the new Ish Smith in that series. In this Mm. game, when Ish Smith was in the game, they just picked on him and picked on him and picked. It was... You know, Simmons posting him up in ISO. It was Curry running him through pick and rolls with Tobias Harris. It was that over and over and over. We're all kind of waiting for the Knicks to do that. Julius Randle just isn't that kind of like mismatch grinder player yet. And there's some matchup issues with what Reggie Bullock was doing and where you hide Trey and all that. I'm sure there will be some of those issues against the Sixers as well. Like if they're going to start Matisse Thibel, you can hide Trey there without an issue. But at some point in those games, he's going to have to guard real shooters. And when those situations come, they're going to run Curry or George Hill or whoever that is into screens with Simmons, and he's going to mash Trey Young under the basket. And it's going to come down to, you know, some of Simmons' value in that series. It's going to come down to, is he going to convert those hooks or dunks or layups or whatever he's getting at, at a respectable rate? And is he going to get to 18 or 20 points a night? Maybe, again, maybe that's not a great sign if we're talking about a star. Can he get to 18? But I, I don't know. I, I still like enough of what Simmons does otherwise. Simmons at the five versus the Hawks would be a fun series. I mean, it's, they won't, that'd be a really fun series. Yeah. Before we, we turn the page here, I do want to say, like, I've been thinking a lot about this lately. Like, we talk a lot about Ben Simmons not shooting threes, like, to the point where it's probably the dominant storyline of his career. It might be for his entire career, right? Um, but how weird is it that we don't really know why that is? Like, we know everything about everything. <laughs> and it, We like, think we best, do anyways. Yeah. Right, right. I, but, I but think that's your ex- problem, Justin. <laughs> the best explanation we have for this is that he just kind of doesn't want to. And, like, the only comparable story is probably Fultz. But even Fultz, there's a cause and effect there where it's like something was wrong, either psychologically or actually like physically with his arm or whatever it was that led to him to not want to shoot threes anymore. That screwed up his shot. With Ben, it's just like, 
um, the Dunn situation, which I thought was a bit of overkill, but they went overkill because their defense had been so historically bad for the seasons preceding it, right? It was like, let's get some freaking defense in here somehow, some way. Uh, one, I just love that they can score when Trey Young is not on the floor now because they got bogey. And this dude is fearless. Uh, Hwerter, um, look. I love he, how you say that. Hwerter. Hwerter. <laughs> <laughs> <Hwerter. Gusto>. Yeah. <laughs> uh, again, I like what he does on the ball when Trey is out of the game, right? Like, he's nobody's idea of, you know, some dynamic two-guard. But he, he has enough, you know, moxie and skill work that you like what they do, especially from the guard position. Now... Philly does have crazy wing defensive depth that I think is going to present some problems for them. I just think without Embiid, the Hawks are more talented. They just are. I'm I'm a Trey Young guy. He's a walking, talking, breathing, competent offense by himself, right? And the talent around him is such that they're going to score effectively against Philly. I, I'm sorry, man. I, I, I think they're beating Philly. I, I just think they're better with without Embiid, of course. This is like a micro question, but I've been thinking about it ever since this setting or this this pairing solidified. Who does Clint Capella guard? Well, ben you could say the opposite. Who is guarding Clint Capella? Because Dwight How- Howard is going to get fouled out like in 15 minutes. <laughs> it's fair. Hey, it's that's fair. An, old, mean, an old relationship. Dwight was Clint Capella's back in Houston. That old rivalry. Go. Um, no, but it's a good question, Rob. I just have no idea how that matchup shakes out. Because I'm thinking if I were if I were the Hawks, I would want DeAndre Hunter on Ben Simmons. That's kind of how I would start. But then I don't know where you really put Capella because everyone else can shoot unless you want to put him on Thibault if they start Thibault. Again, it's it's a weird, it's a weird matchup positionally because these teams just don't line up in any At way all. that you would expect. And and that's what's gonna make it fun. It's gonna figure out like can role player X even play in this series. I don't know. Like, there's going right. to be a lot of those kinds of questions going on, which is, I mean, that's where we really get into the meat of it. Okay, I got a question for y'all about this, the Knicks series. Yeah. So, everyone says Tom Thibodeau, like, watches film to, like, 4 a.m. every night or something. <laughs> Yet, his teams don't make adjustments in these series. So, that's what nice is he thing. doing? Like, couldn't he go home at 5 p.m. and play golf if he's doing the same thing every day? Like, what's the difference? <laughs> Sharks... I'm glad you brought this up because I've been waiting to play uh, America's number one game show. Uh, and that is, who is the biggest fraud on the New York Knickerbockers? Oh, uh, God. Here we go. Waz, you, you, were, you were first up on, on our panel here. Uh, who is the biggest fraud in New York right now? Is it Julius Randle, who was an MVP candidate and apparently isn't very good anymore? Is it Tom Thibodeau, who only brings teams... He raises their floor and probably doesn't do much more than that. Or is it Taj Gibson who is starting for some reason and is only in there in order to be an incredibly dirty player? Waz, what is your answer? <laughs> Look, I, I don't want to call any of these guys frauds because, you know, to me, I knew who Julius Randle was, decided that he was going to get into the playoffs and average 25 a game. Just didn't seem very plausible. You know, I will say he made tough shots all year. And I think there's something to be said about stakes and the playoffs and how that affects players and their mental and their ability to make some of these hard-ass shots. I think there's something to be said for that. But, yeah, if you were somebody who was like, 
Julius Randle is legitimately, you know, going to be a perennially third-team All-NBA kind of guy, um, et cetera, et cetera. He proved himself to not be that. You know, you, he couldn't be the offensive hub for anything. Um, they didn't have the, they don't have the type of team where when Trey Young does switch out onto you, somebody who Julius Randle, you know, bully ball is literally how he get, made his name in this freaking league. Should be punishing that, and he couldn't do it. He couldn't he couldn't initiate from eighteen feet out with little guys on him. Um, he proved to just not be a go-to-ish type of player. You, you shouldn't center your playoff offense around Julius Randle. But I would challenge anybody to say that anybody thought that going into the playoffs. Like, you would have to be an idiot to think that, no? I mean, well, most I'll... of New York seemed like they were pretty <laughs> sold on Julius being kind of a guy here. I mean, uh, even uh, if he wasn't a 1A, like, I, I think there were a lot of people convinced he was a 1B. Barrier. Are Nick fans idiots? <laughs> <laughs> I will we say the B roll, the B roll of Randall from this series over the next couple months. When everyone on, you know, there's like on on Sports Center, they're talking about what are the Knicks going to do in free agency, and they're showing Randall's playoff run. Where I think he elbowed two Hawks in the face in this game. He passed the ball out of bounds a couple times. He was just totally out of sorts. I mean, when it was ugly, it was really ugly. And you know, th this looked very much in the end like a series where only one of these teams could score at all because only one of them has real shooters. That's kind of a huge problem. In Randall's defense, like his coach did not put him in positions to succeed. At some point, mm -hmm. Taj Gibson's not being guarded. You have to mm -hmm. adjust. It's crazy to watch Mavs Clippers and watch the lineups change and watch the adjustments change over the course of the game. Like, okay, who's guarding whom? The zone, the man. And then you watch the Knicks. It's like, you just lost two games by 30 points. We're doing the same thing again. It's like, it's unbelievable. I, I honestly, I mean, I can believe Kips would do it, but it's just still kind of shocking. At least try something different. Like, why not? This series was probably over when the big adjustment was to play Derrick Rose 48 minutes and also to elevate Taj Gibson into the starting lineup. Like, I, I know New Orleans was hurt and maybe that was their only recourse there. And, uh, but it was just like copy and paste Tibbs all over again. It really just leaned into this idea that uh, when the going gets tough, he's just going to go back to what worked in 2004. Let the record show, I think Taj Gibson was actually pretty good in this series. But most importantly, standing cool. ovation for Nate McMillan who I think coached a pretty a pretty great series, basically weeded out all of the Hawks, like no Trey Young, no Bogdan Bogdanovich minutes that were killing them, shorted up the rotation exactly the way they needed to, switched up the matchups on Randall and Rose all the time to keep the pressure on them. I thought, you know, Nate has not exactly covered himself in glory in past playoff runs. This series, I thought he coached really well. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much offense all over the court for the Hawks. And I think that was the thing that really jumped out to me in this one. Um, you know, even when the Trey wasn't going or Bogey wasn't going, I don't think Bogey had a particularly great series here. Uh, but like John Collins was, is just like kind of money from three now. And like, it's just like, it's hard to stop all of them. And that's going to be a big issue for the Sixers. The only thing that really has me worried for the Hawks going into this next round though, is there's a little bit of unease for so many guys who probably don't have a lot of playoff experience. Yeah. I know Trey has really lived up to the moment, but like, you just don't feel confident in a lot of what they have out there. And I do wonder if that's going to be the difference, especially when you have a Sixers team that's kind of been together here, what, now like four postseasons in a row? They've been through the grind before. And I, I do wonder how much that institutional knowledge and just like uh, just the consistency of being around each other for so long is going to pay off. Yeah, and you're counting on, you are counting on really young. Obviously, Trey is young and whatever. I think he's a gamer and he's going to be fine. But guys like Horter 
guys like DeAndre Hunter, guys like John Collins, as you mentioned, who have literally never, ever, ever done this. And, you know, they're going to have their Terrence Mann down the stretch moments. You know, that's what happens in these really tight series. Now, you know, to be sure, I, I joked and said Hawks and six. I don't think the Hawks are going to blow the doors off of the 76ers. I think they're too well coached. They have too much defensive talent specifically to just get smoked that way. But I think, man, I think their talent is going to prevail in the long term of this series. Young guys or not, it's going to be dope to watch too. Well, especially Trey just proved if you're a good defensive team, he can find the angles against you. He can dig it out. He'll he'll drive deep into the paint. He'll find his bigs. He'll find his shooters. Trey Young's passing is what broke open this series. And he's going to have to do it again against a bigger, more dynamic defense in Philadelphia, especially if Embiid is out there. But even if he's not, even if it's Simmons and Thibel and that kind of smaller group running around, that could be a really good defensive team too, uh, even though the matchups are, are kind of weird. Yeah. I mean, I think Trey's kind of like Luca, where you've got to switch. And this time he'll be going up against a coach who's not dead asleep on the sidelines. I'll probably do more of that. <laughs> I think the, the guy to me is DeAndre Hunter. He's the, the ceiling raiser for the Hawks. When he gets going, they're really good. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, let's flip to the last series of the night here, and uh, really quickly. Before Do we, we have to? <laughs> eh. Well, Rob, is there anything you want to talk about with the Jazz before we speculate wildly about their their next round and going forward? Like, do you want to talk about their defensive fundamentals for like five minutes? Actually, I I, I mean, I do have a question about the Jazz. <laughs> okay. So we've seen now point guards go off against them in the playoffs. John Morant had a great series, tailed off a little towards the end, but was great. Jamal Murray obviously blew up against them last year. We've seen centers go off against them. Jokic had a great playoff series against them last year, had 30 in game seven to help clinch that. And we all know that kind of their existential question is how are they going to match up with big wings, guys like Kawhi or Luka. And so at this point, I'm kind of wondering, for as much respect as I have for that defense, who who are they guarding well in the playoffs? Like who who does this team guard well? 100%. They're low-key not a good defensive team in the playoffs because you spread Gobert on the perimeter and you have like three or four bad defenders. They're an whoa, offensive whoa, whoa, team. Jarks, they went yo, shootouts. Chill. Utah fans are going to go crazy on you. Rudy is <laughs> hes the prodigal son. He's the chosen one. hes You can't say ever mention that Rudy has deficiencies in anything in any part of his game. You, can, you just can't do it, Jarks. You just can't do it. No, I'm kidding. I agree with you. Uh, that's the that, but that's what every. I don't know. We watch every single postseason, and when you can't deal with guys on the perimeter, no matter what your position is, it's hard for you to play. We literally just finished talking about Luka Doncic's third quarter, where, you know, Zubac plants his ass in the paint, and Luka Doncic just goes insane. By the way, scored or assisted on 31 of the 37. Mavs buckets this game. Just saw that Dang, on Harala Bob's Twitter. That is crazy. Zubac did? I mean, I, <laughs> he was out there for most of them. <laughs> um, and so, you know, like, I'm sorry, Rudy. Like, that's part of postseason basketball, being able to go out on the perimeter and make things difficult for people. So, you know, it is what it is. Uh, will, will they be challenged in that way next series? I think it's kind of guaranteed that they will, right? Whether it's the Je- whether it's the uh, the Clippers or Luka Doncic, they're gonna they're gonna be challenged on the perimeter. Well, I think the good news for the Jazz is that they showed in this game that they can just absolutely bury you. I mean, this yeah, this game was over can. in twelve minutes, and this whole series really the margin was 
the Jazz made a ton of threes and the Grizzlies did not. And they're going to do that against even teams that want to shoot more threes, even teams like the Mavs or the Clippers. Like they contain that line pretty well. You may get other stuff. You may score in other ways, but they're going to get more threes against you and they can absolutely bury you when they do that, especially when, at least in this series, Donovan Mitchell is the best player on the floor. I don't think that's going to be the case if they play against Luka or Kawhi. He's not going to have that different gear from everyone else like he did against the Grizzlies. But I mean, that was every point of separation in this series for me was either the Jazz are making a ton of threes or Donovan Mitchell looks kind of unstoppable in the high pick and roll against this Grizzlies defense, which I mean, the Grizzlies are a good defensive team. They just did not have any answers for that guy. I mean, that's the evolution of Utah as a team over the last two or three years. Mitchell's gotten better. They got Conley. They have Bogdanovich. They have Clarkson. They can get a lot of buckets. They're not going to stop you anymore, but they can score with you. Yeah, that's why I was disrespect when y'all was calling them the the Hawks of 20-whenever. <laughs> the five all-star Hawks. That was dis- disrespectful because that, that Hawks team never had anybody as electric as Donovan Mitchell. Not, not even freaking close, by the way. Jeff T yeah. going over in his grave right now. <laughs> <laughs> Probably literally, because uh, I haven't seen him in a while. Uh, so Conley left this game with hamstring soreness. Uh, apparently he's going to have an MRI. We'll see if he's going to be available for game one, whenever that may be. Uh, here's my counter to the jazz doubt, which I'm really surprised Rob here, like just really sorry. turning heel right in front of our eyes here. Um, this is probably going to be, like I said, with the Ben Simmons test, this is probably going to be a definitive series playoff run for the Jazz for this current roster construction because if you look at the way things are breaking here the Lakers might be out Clippers might be out whatever team they're going to get in the next round you're probably getting them coming off of a game seven and if it is the Mavs you're getting Luka with one arm and now Luka with one arm is still pretty good it's probably going to put a 40 on you but the path is there for them to finally quiet some of these concerns about like, oh, are they just a regular season team? Yada, yada, yada. It could be Jazz Suns by the end of this Western Conference playoff bracket. I mean, that's probably the most likely outcome at this point. Well, I'm not saying they're going to lose. I'm just saying if they're going to win, they're going to win with offense. I just, mm. I don't see the defense holding up against any of the, you know, those those teams they're going to play against. All right. Um, all right. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's take, sure. Why not? That sounds good. Uh, let's take a quick break. Uh, and then we will come back and talk about Waz's other hometown, his vacation home in Boston. <laughs> and then let's get into some other, uh, off season stuff for some of these teams that lost tonight. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. It's 3 PM and dinner is still hours to come. Maybe lunch didn't quite hit the spot. That's where the new two for $5 chicken wraps from Arby's come in. Available in ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for the afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Arby's 2 for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. This episode is brought to you by Visible Wireless. Want a wireless provider that always brings its A-game? Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. And as if that wasn't already a huge win, you could use promo code RINGER20 to receive $20 off your first month just for listening to us talk about basketball. Not bad, right? You don't need more than one line of wireless to save. Just switch to Visible at Visible.com and use promo code RINGER20 for data management practices and additional terms. Visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month. So the Celtics, as we know them, are are gone. 
bring out the bagpipes, start playing the Dropkick Murphys if you weren't already, Was uh, Danny Ainge is now gone. He has retired, retired in air quotes, because there is a lot in the air that suggests that he might wind up with a different team perhaps as soon as uh, this offseason. We'll see on that one. But Brad Stevens taking over at, uh, for, as president of basketball operations for the Celtics, coming uh, rising up from head coaching uh, position. Pretty surprising. Was your reaction here? Um, on the age front, honestly, you know, I'm somebody who just is annoyed by GM talk, just period. Just GM, you know, nut grabbing and gargling. You know, like it, it's like wow. it, it, it started it's a family there. program. It's a family it started. Program. It started a few years ago where you could just t- see a shift in like the transaction praising and oh my god, he got a trade exception in there. Did you see he got another second round pick? Oh my goodness, it was it became ridiculous. And I think Ainge was one of the first people who got thrown in that mix as some sort of savant or genius because Billy King and Prokhorov were freaking idiots, right? Like, Ainge is so smart. Look at what he did to Brooklyn. Like, that always just rubbed me the wrong way. And generally speaking, they were always talking, it was white guys talking about white guys in a game full of black dudes who do the actual special shit. So, yeah, that always rubbed me the wrong way with the Ainge discussion. I listened to our emergency pod and Rosillo was like, he was out there defending Ainge pretty, you know, vociferously. And, you know, I think if any, no, anybody who would say Danny Ainge was a bad GM is just not paying attention. He was not bad ever. You, you could say he was good. I just don't think his sort of reputation within the insider press of when you talk to GMs, they tell you Ainge is the greatest. I'm like, I don't know that his record sort of warrants that. That's just my opinion. The other side of it is um, with Stevens just moving into Ainge's old job feels weird, especially after a year where we're, you know, bitching about not enough black people getting opportunities for head coaching jobs and GM jobs that this dude just jumps to a job he never had. Even though it's within the organization, you might say, oh, he's being um, promoted, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that feel that part of it feels kind of weird. Like I don't know that a black dude coming off of this particular season as a coach would just get upgraded to GM like that. I don't know. So that part of it feels weird. But H had a good run in Boston. He won a championship. I'm sure he'll get another job. Was to double down on that. You were talking about how Ainge got all his credit. Remember when people were saying. Is Brad Stevens the most valuable player in the NBA? Of course, like, remember that of conversation? Course, of course, of course, of course. <laughs> Would you rather have Brad Stevens or LeBron James for the next five years? Both, right? right now. <laughs> yeah, of yeah. course. I'll never forget that one. You pick Brad, right? <laughs> Um, no, here's here's the distinction I would draw. I think the thing that ultimately felled Ainge, and he had a, a pretty good run here is that the game kind of turned on him. I think like what the Celtics did establishing the core that they have is one of the better jobs of GMing in the past couple of years. Like they're very meticulous in how they manage their assets. Um, you know, just working all these trades, trying to win every trade, yada, yada, yada. It's very, like you were saying, was like the Madden style of playing the game where you just sim the season and you just make sure that you're the one can, like making the trades and drafting the players, right? right? The difference is like they were caught at the middle and then probably the prime example of a player 
wresting control away from an organization like that and controlling his destiny where they made this brilliant trade for Kyrie Irving, but Irving said, no, I want to go somewhere else. And that is where you see things turn, where you could do all the right things, but now the power is on the player's side. And I do think the Celtics, if there is a pretty big flaw and they're just the way they've done things over the past couple of years is that they haven't found the connections to that side of things as well as they can, because that is what dictates where players move. Like the Brooklyn Nets, prime example of like, they did all this asset managing, yada, yada, in order to create the cap space for these guys, but they also play in Brooklyn. And that's also like a bigger part of that. And like, I think it's important that they, that both Katie and Kyrie wanted to come to there and not stay in Boston. Rob, <laughs> I have no take. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have no take. Justin. Yes. I would say the other thing they got caught in the middle of is like trying to quote unquote win trades. Brooklyn just said, we'll trade seven picks for James Harden because who cares? Boston never did that. Like Boston kept trying to make the perfect trade for like five years when the game now is you just trade all your picks for a star and go for it. That was the thing they never really ended up doing. That's it. And, and oh, we can't trade for one year of AD. Oh, we can't trade for, for Kawhi Leonard. Oh, we can't do it. I'm like, why not? Why not? If you're such fucking geniuses, you'll figure that out on the back end too, won't you? This that's just my thing. It's just it's like the <laughs> we play to win the games, right? Not collect assets and oh my god, the war chest. You know how many times I heard the fucking Celtics asset portfolio described as a war chest? Did these motherfuckers look like the British Navy this year? <laughs> I don't think so, okay? Yeah. And look, there's, you can't take away the fact that a lot of people thought Jalen Brown was a reach. They nailed that. Mm -hmm. They had the stones to trade out of the number one pick and take Tatum because they believed in him so much. They nailed that. That's a fact. We can't take that away from them. The team stunk this year. How can you be geniuses and put such a stinky ass team around this, around those guys this year? It just didn't work out. And I think it is, it does have to do with this idea of getting everything perfect. Because guess what? And I'll say this every single time that asset play shit, that's what keeps you employed for five, six years. Oh, no, 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 down the road, it's gonna be great. Just wait for down the road, it's gonna be awesome. No, 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 down the road, down the road. No, 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 just keep, just keep, just keep letting me push it down the road. I got assets to play with. It's good for GM job security. So in that sense, he was smart to do that too, you know? And you could say I'm being cynical about it. I'm not, I'm just saying like this idea that these GM dudes are the most important and the smartest in the room and they're playing the chessboard. It's fucking stupid. I think just as an industry, we do need to pay more attention and give more credit to the dudes that are doing it out on the floor. The, the, the constant praising of transactions and the cottage industry that's grown, it, grown up, that sprung up out of it, annoys me. I'm sorry. And I do think I am biased by a bunch of white dudes circle jerking about a bunch of white dudes in a league that's black as hell and the best, most electrifying people, the most special people are predominantly white. And maybe that's what makes me feel weird about it. Waz, you know what the genius move was? Because they had to fire their coach and they couldn't do it. So they <laughs> fired him up. That was the genius move. <laughs> Seinfeld, yeah, elevating the mailroom guy. Yeah. They had to get a new coach. Like, I think they had to. It was time for a change. Yeah. And they couldn't fire him, so let's just... 
push him up. That part of it is a little weird, especially when we've been talking about the Kyrie situation there, all of the roster issues there in general, like Gordon Hayward, for example, feeling squeezed out and not wanting to accept a lesser role and going somewhere else because he wanted shots. He wanted well, minutes. Rob, he wanted you heard to play it more. Already. You heard it a thousand times. Danny would trade his grandmother. <laughs> Danny would do this. this is, and it was great. When people, when people were saying that, that was seen as, you know, a quality of Danny Ainge. He'll trade anybody. He treats everybody like shit. It's great. I, you guys remember that narrative, don't you? <laughs> I don't even think this is just an Ainge thing, though, because I think if the Celtics did one fundamental thing wrong during this era, it was misreading what their players wanted and how they would fit together and knowing who they were, knowing what right. like what Kyrie Irving wanted was the fundamental misread of that situation. And they assumed he was going to resign. He told them all the right things that they wanted to hear. And they, like they bought into they bought into an image of the future that just was not going to happen. And the person who is kind of responsible for coaching all those people, for getting to know them, for understanding them, for putting them in situations they're going to be comfortable with is now the person running your front office. And I'm not saying Brad Stevens can't do a good job, you know, negotiating contracts and engineering trades and doing all the stuff they're going to want him to do. But it is a little weird when the reason you're not where you want to be is because of mismanagement of people. And now that person who was kind of in charge of that, essentially of your roster, of your locker room is now running your team. Yeah, that is the big question going forward here. Uh, it's also a very rare jump to go from head coaching straight to the front office. Like I was trying to think about the even the examples of this. Like Lauren Lawrence Frank technically is, but he did a a stint like taking notes for uh, Jason Kidd for a little bit before he ended up in the front office. Uh, Daily reports, and, Justin. Get it right. Ew, Daily reports. I forgot about the Lawrence Frank era. Ainge himself. <laughs> Was like a coach, but then he went to the broadcast booth for a little bit and then ultimately ended up in the front office. Can anyone think of anybody else? What did Bird in Indiana? Did he go straight from coaching to the front office? I can't remember if there was a break there or not. That sounds right, but it's very rare. And I, my big question here is, and this is probably the unknown of the situation, is like, is Brad Stevens that type of guy? And like, Charles, you've been around a bunch of coaches throughout the years. Like, does Brad strike you as the type of guy who would take to that type of work? Know what you know about like his coaching and just like him personality wise. Does it seem like he can make that jump? I just feel like it was a continuity move because the rest of the front office is still in place. So Brad's on top of it, but all these guys who've been around for like 15, 20 years will be quote unquote advising him. So mm -hmm. I think that was just a move to get him in a different position and he'll figure it out with a lot of, he won't be like the GM. I don't think they won making all the calls. I'd be surprised. So here's my other question about this. I know the Celtics, things didn't end well, and there are a lot of people bagging on just the roster was being probably the front of that list. Um, I, they have a luxury tax problem. That's going to be a tough one to overcome. Kemba Walker is not doing well these days. But I look up and down this roster and everyone's acting like this is a train wreck. I don't think no. it's as bad of a situation as people are making out to be. And it kind of reminds me of the Sixers last year where it's like, oh, Tobias Harris is garbage. Like that contract is an albatross. I'll never live <laughs> up to it. And then it's just like, you see him for a couple months. You, you replace one big guy with a small guy in the Sixers. And it's like, oh, Tobias Harris is pretty good. He's probably like a near max player just based on his value. I don't know if Stevens is that type of guy, if he's a Maury in order to see a situation and think something differently of it. If anything, like you'd expect the opposite because he just came from being around these players too much. And I do worry if he'll be like too sympathetic to some of the problems of, of these guys and maybe like overly in love with them. 
But I look up and down the sauce. There's talent. Tatum and Brown are probably as good as you're going to get as pillars to start your franchise. I wonder if Kemba just gives them decent production. If he's just around, uh, that contract looks a little bit better. And then by the year after that, it's a, it's an expiring. Maybe you could trade that. And like Robert Williams is good. Like Aaron Neesmith, like there's like guys here to do stuff with. I just don't think it's a train wreck as, as a lot of people are kind of suggesting. No, nah, it's not a train wreck. It just depends on your expectations. Like, if you expect them to be one of the best teams in the Eastern Conference, I don't see how they're cracking that. Although, Justin, to your parallel Philadelphia, the difference there is Joel Embiid went from a very good player to one of the best players in the world. Right. If Jason Tatum does that, all these other problems are not going to really be hmm. problems. Well, Jason Tatum scored 50 the other night, and I was told <laughs> that he's he's one of the best players in the world now. That's not that's no longer the case? So. No, I'm just saying, like, I just spent... I can't be a hypocrite here, right? Like, I just spent... You definitely can. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Drop your takes. No secret. <laughs> I just spent how much time gushing over what the, the Hawks have as a nucleus, right? And I don't think it can be argued that the Celtics' nucleus is somehow, like, drastically inferior to what the Hawks are dealing with now. Um, I think they got to do some house cleaning. I think... They need to do some planning around, all right, we have the kids, the two kids signed for how long? When do we make, when are we going to be able to make our move again around them? I don't think that's next season or probably the season after that one. You know, so that's what it comes down to is when do they make their next move after this? You know, because it's clear that they, you know, they did the thing with, when they got Kyrie in here and they had Hayward and they had Horford and they had all of these people and they had all these chips and they had the kids on rookie deals and they could, you know, they felt like they put together this super team. I think they they need to start thinking about when that next one will be, even though these two guys will be on maxes now. Um, we'll see what happens. Right. I think it might be like a one-year, not even a rebuild, but just play Romeo Langford, play Aaron Neesmith, play Grant Williams, play Robert Williams. These guys have talent, but they've got to play. If it's, they're kind of like caught between two worlds where they want to win all the time now, but they have like five guys on rookie deals who need minutes. If they give those guys minutes, maybe in two years, they're really good. Yep. Romeo Langford is the answer. Time is a flat circle. He had a good, good series. Time is a flat circle. Um, <laughs> all right. I just want to do quickly some of offseason stuff for some of these other teams that went out here. Let's do one question for all three teams that went out. Let's start with the Wizards here. Charks, I'm going to start with you because I, I could tell you're going to have an answer for this one. Bradley Beal uh, was noncommittal afterwards. We'll see how that one plays out. It kind of comes down to what he wants. We don't know how to project that out. My question for you, Charks, is... Scott Brooks, do you bring him back? I mean, if you're going to bring Westbrook back, you kind of have to, right? I don't know. Like, they're kind of tired at the hip at this point, it seems like. I mean, if 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 your goal is to tank, why not? I <laughs> <laughs> mean, and, and, and to me, because that's what the Wizards should be doing. All right, you got your free, Leonis, you got your playoff. Did it feel great to get utterly trounced in the first round by a vastly superior team. Did you like that feeling? Did you love it on a team that like, you know, I I like Rui. I liked what I've seen a little bit that I saw from Denny Abdia. <sighs> like, are you just like, all right, you know, some teams lose in the first round and you say to yourself, yo, we're building towards the future. It's completely fine. Everything's going to be great. I don't think that that's the, that's what we're, the energy we're feeling from Washington here. So it's like, yeah, bring Russ and Scott Brooks back so y'all could get some good lottery picks next year. That's 
that's my thing. But they do got to get rid of Bill. Get get your assets um, for Bradley Bill and and move on with it because this is obviously not some type of winning formula here. I think it's always a matter of what's the alternative. Like, who is the coach you want to bring in? What kind of coach is that? Because, again, yeah, if, if they're going to field the same kind of team and expect dramatically different results, that is not the Scott Brooks way, exactly. <laughs> and he's he's had a good run here, to be honest with you. Like, five years in a job, that's a long time for an NBA coach. They have not shown a ton. There's been upheaval. There's been injuries. There's been lots of reasons to explain that. I don't see this team having an incredible upward trajectory with what it's got. And so you're either shaking up the roster, you're changing the coach, maybe both. I don't really have a problem if they want to take a dramatically different direction. And if Beal, you know, for as non-committal as he was, if he starts pressuring in the summer or wanting something different, which would be totally within his right, I think he's certainly done his time there. That is a, <laughs> an easy, clean opportunity to transition to a different kind of coach and, and what you might want in a in more of a renovating situation if you're the Wizards. Right. Um, all right. Let's do Grizzlies here quickly. Uh, Rob, what do you think the Grizzlies need at this point? It seems like they fall into the lot of guys category. They have a lot of young talent that showed pretty well in the playoffs here. Like Bain was good. Uh, Tillman didn't get many minutes down the stretch, but it seems like he might be a good pairing with Jaron Jackson. Is there anything you see here that can clarify what they've already shown in the playoffs? I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way where they can keep the defensive intensity that they have, especially on the perimeter. Like there were, there were possessions in that series where the jazz like could not even get below the free throw line. They were so up into them. I think that's great. How do you keep that, but squeeze in a little more juice offensively? They just do not have it. You know, the, the point of having John Morant is that he's a beautiful off ball player that he's so versatile. They can, he can score in so many different ways, impact the game in so many different ways. I want someone to take the ball out of his hands just a little bit to play him in that capacity because with this series, you know, once Dylan Brooks started playing like just an all-star and not a first ballot Hall of Famer, everything kind of went back to normal and we got the sense that Utah was just a much better team. They just need a little bit more scoring and counting on Dylan Brooks to be that guy, uh, to be a guy you're going to build a statue of outside your arena every night. That's just not it. Right. All right. Last one was who is the superstar that Knicks fans are going to be beckoning to New York this summer? <laughs> I mean, I think the obvious answer is Beal. Seems like that's obvious. You know, we've seen the Booker stuff kind of calm down because the Suns have been so successful. Yeah, it'll be Beal. Um, I remember... <laughs> <laughs> I remember one of my uh, friend, good friends who's a Knicks fan hitting me very early in the season or midway point, the Knicks are doing their thing. He's like, how does Brad Beal not make this team a contender? <laughs> I was like, was it Jerry how much Ferrara? time do you have? Like, no, nah, it was not Jerry, although I would love to hear from Jerry um, about <laughs> Jerry, this particular at this. season. On a first-name first name basis. basis. Really yeah. Yeah, yeah, up the spot dog. over here. That's my boy. That's my boy. No, um... Yes, yeah, it's Bradley Beal. And to be honest, I don't think it's the worst thing for the Knicks to, you know, chase second-tier Eastern Conference them, right? Like, basically, not to, you know, kick them again, but the Hawks, you know? Like, you're always guaranteed to be in the top five. You might someday put a nice enough mix together 
to be super frisky one year and even make it to second rounds and conference finals or whatever and get beat down. But I don't think it's the worst thing in the world for the Knicks to get to the second round and put a scare in a team for six games. Like, that's that's a great outcome for a franchise that has completely stunk up the joint for 20 years. Mm. That's not hyperbole. That's not overstating it. That's just empirical fact. <laughs> for 20 years, the Knicks has stunk up the joint. Sure. Yeah, so they should be clamoring for Brad Beal for some level of continued competence. I don't disagree with you. I do think that after another year of competence, those same Nick fans will be wondering why there isn't a title hanging in the rafters again. <laughs> like, um, all right, let's end it there. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you to Isaiah Blakely on production. Uh, we will be back next week. I think we'll be back on Wednesday. Let's just say Wednesday going forward. And if we're not, nobody will really care. Um, until then, whenever that is, we'll see. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.